0: I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. International affairs practitioners work at the front line of the world's problems. They bring skills and expertise from wide-ranging disciplines to address many of the seemingly intractable global challenges facing us today. They examine difficult situations from multiple perspectives while considering the opportunities to resolve them. Many of these practitioners have leadership roles at the U.S. Department of State, international bodies or non-governmental organizations, which requires them to be thoughtful, strategic, and resilient. How these professionals are trained and educated is vitally important. What is the mission of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University, and how is it developing the next generation of international leaders? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Ambassador Ruben Brigitte, Dean of the Elliott School at GW. Ambassador Brigadier, thank you for being here. My pleasure. So um, could you give us uh, an overview of the history and mission of the George Washington University's Elliott School of international affairs.
2: Sure. Well, the George Washington University is almost 200 years old. It's founded in 1821 and has had some aspect of the study of politics or law or, you know, some focus on sort of outward looking almost from its founding. Uh, But what we know as the Elliott School of International Affairs uh, was uh, created in 1988 by bringing together a series of Existing programs like for the former School of uh, Public and International Affairs or Business and International Affairs, etc., uh, and it has now, over the course of uh, some uh, thirty-plus years, grown into the largest school of international affairs in the United States of America. We have about three thousand two hundred students, uh, roughly two thousand four hundred undergraduates, roughly eight hundred master's degree students. I like to say that we have the best location of any foreign affairs school on the planet, uh, located on East Street between Nineteenth and Twentieth. I could Take a football from the front of my building and hit the State Department. Uh, we're just a couple of blocks from the White House around the corner from the World Bank and we take maximum advantage of both that location as well as the intellectual infrastructure we have developed in order to provide world-class international affairs education to our students.
0: That's great. You kind of hinted at this, but how is the school organized? What are some of your big uh, areas of of research or expertise and specialty? So we're called
2: the Elliott School of International Affairs, which actually is a deliberate term and it has a specific meaning uh, in our field. And international affairs means that we are multidisciplinary. So we have faculty from across disciplines, from political science, economics, history, anthropology, geography, even engineering, public health, et cetera, uh, all of whom, take a particular international approach to their work. We are organized around a series of research institutes. Uh, Roughly half of them are regional, half of them are functional. Uh, We have a regional institute or master's program covering every region of the world. In fact, uh, when I became dean on October 1st, 2015, I was dean for two hours. And on my first public speech, I declared we would create a new institute for African studies for the start of the next academic year. That's done. It's up and running. Uh, We also have functional institutes focusing on international trade and Investment policy, on uh, security and defense issues, on international development, on science and technology policy, etc.
0: Great. So you are Dean of the Elliott School. You have been since 2015. What are your um, roles and responsibilities with the day in the life of the Dean?
2: Uh, The day in the life of Dean varies quite dramatically. Um, It can vary from, you know, starting off the morning doing a, uh, a, a obviously, as most deans do, faculty meetings, doing a series of curricular administrative issues, and then welcoming a foreign minister or defense minister from a visiting country to uh, doing a coffee hour with students, and then becoming doing a radio interview with a colleague, uh, uh, and then complete the evening with, um, I do these things uh, a couple of times a semester called Jazz with Dean B., Uh, My nickname is Dean B. And so what we do is we rent out a local restaurant and turn it into a jazz cafe for about 40 students. And I will invite a prominent uh, foreign affairs professional to sit on a barstool next to me and do sort of the equivalent of sitting around the campfire. Uh, So our students can have a very frank uh, discussion with a practitioner of foreign affairs, not only about foreign affairs itself, but also with regard to the life of a foreign affairs practitioner to inform their own thinking about their own careers.
0: You know, taking over the school... What are some of the challenges you've faced since taking over as dean? And how have you sought to address those challenges? Well, in some ways,
2: the challenges that I face are – very similar to those that affect American higher education, generally speaking. So um, uh, it is increasingly expensive for uh, most American students uh, to go to university, both at the undergraduate and graduate level. So uh, finding ways to provide the best value for money uh, for our students is an ongoing challenge. Uh, finding and raising the money for fellowship programs and for uh, additional uh, enhancement programs to, to, to broaden the student experience, everything from travel grants to um, uh, research funding, uh, is a constant uh, exercise. I spend easily half of my time fundraising one way or the other. Uh, so that is a challenge. Um, of course, staying at the current state of the art of the discipline is always a challenge as well. So I am of the view as someone who uh, is both a scholar and practitioner of foreign affairs that it is not enough uh, to prepare our students intellectually, although that is obviously the first step in a university education. Uh, we also have to use this precious time to help them develop their practical skills uh, that will help them be impact players from the moment they graduate in whatever organization they uh, they enter, uh, as well as, quite frankly, helping to inform their uh, ethical, uh, moral compass uh, to help them have the, uh, the judgment to be able to confront the world's most uh, difficult challenges.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what has surprised you most?
2: A number of things have surprised me. Um, the... I don't think of myself as an old person, uh, and I think the (laughs) students keep getting younger and younger, Um, but I I remain um, uh, endlessly impressed with the level of intellectual preparation and uh, worldliness, frankly, uh, that a number of our students uh, just arrive with. Um, I remain gratified with the level of idealism uh, and and spirit that they have to go off and engage uh, many of the world's toughest challenges. I will say that I think um, given the prevailing uh, mood in Washington, there is an increasing concern about pursuit of government service. Uh, from, from a bipartisan basis, I think that you know, the young people obviously are, are very astute. Uh, they see the dysfunction that's happening in our government. They see the, uh, the challenges of uh, achieving bipartisan uh, compromise. And many of them, quite frankly, uh, you know, ask the question, is dedicating a career to public service the right path for them? And so uh, I'm one who continues to believe in public service writ large, not only service in government, but uh, service for the public good even in the context of business, um, thinking through uh, how uh, businesses can be uh, responsible ethically and otherwise. Um, And so I continue to work with my other colleagues to to advance the the profound significance of public service to our students.
0: I like to kind of explore the right path you took. So could you tell us a little bit about your career path how you where you started, how you got uh, to where you are today?
2: Sure. Yeah. It will not shock you to know that I get that question a lot, uh, sure. particularly from our students. And what I often say to my students is what you're really asking is not what about my career path. What you're really asking is what lessons can you student learn about uh, uh, from my own path. That said, I uh, am a native of Jacksonville, Florida, uh, where I was born and raised. I'm a child of the 80s. Jacksonville is a huge Navy town. And I was a bit of an odd child in the sense that um, I was obsessed with questions of national security and foreign policy as a young teenager. Uh, you know, my heroes are people like Colin Powell and Brent Scowcroft and the like. And so, I decided that I wanted to go someplace where I could focus uh, exclusively on that. And I also, um, because of the influence of uh, young naval officers and older naval officers I'd met as a boy, decided that I wanted to go be a naval officer. So, I applied to the US Naval Academy, it's the only place at college I applied. Uh, I didn't apply anywhere else. and I got in pretty early in my senior year. Uh, so I went uh, went off to Annapolis and uh, did reasonably well. I majored in political science and was uh, selected as a brigade commander my final year. And I also got a fellowship to study abroad at uh, Cambridge University. Uh, uh, and I knew, uh, again, looking at uh, uh, more senior people that I admired, that uh, my desired career path was to be a senior U.S. Uh, uh, milit- uh, uniformed uh, uh, officer uh, with substantial academic uh, credentials and operational experience to help advise American foreign policy makers on the use of force. Um, so when I went off to graduate school, I, uh, I went for the purpose of studying uh, the use of force in foreign policy. And to make a long story short, when I re- came back to um, naval service, um, I had an ethical crisis uh, because I had met an awful lot of people who had um, uh, been on the working end of policies of violence in their own countries and had a sense of what that looked like. And as a result of recovering uh, from that acute crisis, um, I asked the Navy for early release so I could work on humanitarian issues. And I volunteered to repay back the cost of my education, even if it took me the rest of my life to do it. So the Navy agreed, and I was honorably discharged in the summer of 2000, and went back to Cambridge to finish my graduate studies, uh, and then knew that I wanted to work, again, in this kind of broad public space with this particular view of the world. And so uh, in June of 2001, I got two job offers. The first was to help run a refugee camp on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, again, June of 2001, uh, with an NGO. And The second was to work for the Arms Division of Human Rights Watch here in Washington DC with the opportunity to travel and do research around the world. So I decided to come to Washington and I started with Human Rights Watch on August 13th, 2001. September 11th happened less than a month later. Uh, four months later, I was in Afghanistan for Human Rights Watch unarmed, undefended, doing some of the first human rights and humanitarian research on the ground uh, after the initial phase of the bombing campaign operation, Enduring Freedom. So uh, survived, Uh, came back, went everywhere in Afghanistan, you can imagine, um, uh, uh, Kabul, uh, Kandahar, uh, Herat, uh, Mazar-e-Tarif, et cetera. came back, and then we did a similar mission uh, in Iraq uh, after the 2003 uh, invasion. Uh, we entered Baghdad three weeks after its fall uh, in late March 2003, and again, spent a fair amount of time in Iraq as well. Again, all the places you would have heard of, Baghdad, Basra, Fallujah, um, uh, Al-Hila, uh, etc. And then after two years uh, working on um, human rights issues in war zones uh, for Human Rights Watch. Uh, and newly married, I decided that I wanted to um, go someplace where I could write more broadly about many things I'd seen. Uh, I'd finished my PhD from Cambridge at that point, and I'd gotten the opportunity to uh, be a visiting assistant professor at American University at the School of International Service. So I started that, did that for a year, and then I got an offer to teach at George Mason University in the political science department on a tenure track, uh, which I did. Uh, And um, kind of midway through my tenure process, I got an offer to serve as an International Affairs Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I I spent a year uh, under that program at the U.S. Agency for International Development Mm -hmm. as a Special Assistant in the Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance, uh, researching uh, the use of humanitarian assistance in um, in American defense policy uh, around the world, but especially in the Horn of Africa. As a result of that experience, I got bitten by the policy bug. And much to the chagrin of my parents, I walked away from my secure tenure-track academic (laughs) career uh, and went to work for a think tank uh, at the Center for American Progress, where I ran the Sustainable Security Program for two years. And then a young senator from Illinois was elected president uh, when Barack Obama was elected in, uh, in November 2008. And uh, about a year after that, I was asked to go into government, and I served as the deputy assistant secretary of state in the Bureau for Population, Refugees, and Migration, say that fast three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was responsible for all U.S. refugee programs and all uh, programs for displaced people at all the entire continent of Africa. Um, budget of about $285 million, and over the course of that two years, I've been to every refugee camp on the continent. As a result of that work, um, I was asked to go from there to be the deputy in the Africa Bureau proper, uh, where I was responsible as the deputy assistant secretary responsible for Southern Africa, so all of our embassies in the 10 countries south of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as well as all of our support for regional and security assistance programs in all of Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, after two years there, I was, um, when President Obama was re elected, I was asked to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the African Union and the U.S. Permanent Representative to the U.N. Economic Commission for Africa, uh, which is uh, headquartered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, so uh, my family and I went to Addis for two years, mm-hmm. uh, which was a fantastic assignment. It was very challenging. Um, and as a foreign affairs professional, getting to be a chief of mission uh, at an embassy or a mission abroad is is really um, uh, the sort of pinnacle of being able to, uh, uh, to actually act out uh, diplomacy. And out of uh, that position, I was recruited to be the dean of the LA School of International Affairs, where I've been since October 1st, 2015. So just over four years now, which might officially make it the longest job I've had. <laughs> 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 That's the whirlwind. Wow! Exactly.
0: Um, given all that experience, given you as a naval cadet, from your time in the nonprofit arena to your time in, as an, as a, uh, a member of the State Department, what makes an effective leader? And perhaps you could illustrate some of the principles you follow and some folks who have influenced your style.
2: Sure. Well, the definition of leadership is to get people to do something they would not do absent the application of such leadership uh, in groups of people. So entire volumes have been written about this throughout the course of history. And so I think there are probably a few, you know, basic principles that are that are common to many of them are obviously a vision, you know, having a sense of, of, of where one needs to go, having the a a broad set of tools and skills to encourage people to work together towards that vision. In some ways, that might be um, more conventionally diplomatic and persuasive. In some circumstances, it might be more directed. But the ability to have along that spectrum from persuasion to direction and the wisdom to know when. Um, to use those, uh, I think, is a critical component of, of, of leadership. Obviously, understanding the people uh, whom you're leading and the context within which you lead. I'll give you an example. Um, when, when I first got to the State Department, um, I was probably, I guess, 36 years old, uh, in a f- relatively senior position. Um, the deputy assistant secretary is roughly equivalent of a one- or two-star uh, admiral. And so I thought to myself, and I graduated from the Naval Academy, I was brigade commander. I know how to lead and charge. We're going this way, uh, and and what I quickly realized is that uh, leadership in that context in the in the military does not work the same way as the State Department. I can promise you, neither of them work the same way in an academic context. So learning how to um, how how to adapt uh, the required uh, leadership approach to context is vitally important. Um, So, all that being said, I think probably one example, perhaps one of my most challenging examples of leadership was when I served as ambassador to the African Union in the context of the uh, Ebola uh, emergency in 2014. Um, uh, You may, of course, recall that uh, by uh, late summer 2014, it was clear that uh, this incredibly virulent disease uh, was ravaging three countries in West Africa, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and, uh, and Guinea Conakry, and with a 70% fatality rate amongst, um, uh, amongst its victims. And so, the trick was, how do you arrest uh, the spread of that disease? And the only way to do it was to flood the zone, as it were, with large numbers of healthcare care workers. Uh, and to equip them so that they wouldn't die themselves from the disease. Now, this required a lot of coordination from a lot of different players uh, across the U.S. government, uh, across the African Union, with all of us um, working uh, together, in some cases working quite closely with people we knew very, very well, but whose mission set wasn't necessarily designed for this, like the U.S. military. In other cases, quite frankly, working with people that we weren't used to working with very closely, like the Chinese, but who nevertheless share a very clear interest uh, in stopping the um, uh, the spread of this disease. Um, it meant... Uh, doing really high-stakes diplomacy very rapidly with foreign interlocutors of the African Union. It also meant um, getting my own staff in my own mission um, to motivate them to work incredibly hard, harder than they ever had before because of the hours we had to work and the pressure we were under in order to help uh, do our part of the overall U.S. government response. I'm convinced I lost years off of my life uh, uh, as a result of that, but I couldn't be more proud about the uh, collect- really collective international response about how the Africans rose to the occasion uh, and how um, you know, our own government responded in particular, how my own team responded. And I, I think it was for sure a kind of doctoral final exam in terms of applying every conceivable leadership tool I'd ever learned. Uh, in a critically important real-life situation.
0: What are the key strategic priorities at the Elliott School of International Affairs at GW? We will ask its dean, Ruben Brigadier, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ambassador Ruben Brigetti, Dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. So, Ambassador, um, I'd like to talk in this segment about your vision for the Elliott School at GW. Uh, What are your key strategic priorities uh, and how are you advancing the mission of the school?
2: So, I often say that international affairs students are a special breed of student because, by definition, they care about the state of the world and want to prepare themselves to fight the world's fight. And... I also believe that we actually know an awful lot about most of the world's problems, but the challenge in solving them is therefore not a lack of knowledge, but it is a lack of leadership. And leadership, as I mentioned, is something really quite specific. It's the ability to bring people together to solve problems in a way in which they would not do absent the application of such leadership. So our mission at the Elliott School is very simple, and that is to build leaders for the world, leaders with knowledge, skills, and character. So, our strategy for doing that is something that we call STEP, S T E P, which stands for Achieving Elite Excellence in Scholarship, Teaching, ethics and practice. So we demonstrate empirically that the quality of scholarship and teaching on offer at the Elliott School is every bit as good and with respect, in some cases, better than our sister schools. Uh, But we help to differentiate ourselves with a focus on applied ethics as well as developing practical skills. So as I tell our students, if you want to prepare yourself to face the world's toughest challenges, I can promise you that you will find yourself confronted with hard ethical decisions. And so part of what we try to do for our students during their time with us is to help inform them what doing the right thing feels like and to give them a framework for applying ethical analysis to problems, which may not appear to have an ethical dimension initially, but the more you think about it, clearly do. We also want to ensure that our students have a hard set of practical skills so they can tell potential employers not only what they know but what they know how to do. So, the series of initiatives that we have launched at the Elliott School from doubling down on the importance of regional studies to uh, what we're doing in terms of uh, building out an entire curriculum for uh, studying ethics and international affairs to developing what we're calling the parallel practical curriculum, which is a series of uh, sequentially more difficult skills courses to prepare our students for the hard set of practical skills is all designed for this purpose, and that is to build leaders for the world.
0: So, what um, what are some of the external trends that have shaped and informed your vision?
2: Several things. First of all, uh, the notion that international affairs students will go off and then go straight to be pin-striped diplomats is uh, is a long-sense passé notion. Uh, at the Elliott School, roughly a third of our graduates will go to the private sector, a third will go uh, into government, and a third will go into the nonprofit sector. And so we need to be able to prepare our students to take advantage of any one of those sectors uh, that may speak to them and where the opportunities may fit. The second thing is that that's a corollary to that is that the breadth of opportunities in international affairs is much broader than simply serving in government, uh, particularly in the private sector. And so it's critically important that our students have a skill set that enables them to reach beyond you know, merely government. And it's also because, quite frankly, yeah, even in international affairs, we recognize that the the most important actors in international affairs, in some cases, may not even be governments. Um, they may be you know international corporations. They may be very small, um, violent non-state actors. They may be you know some you know guy or girl with a you know the computer and a cell phone and uh, access to Twitter who's you know tweeting about you know developments in some far-flung you know part of the world, and they can you know, launch a social movement. So being able to address all those things is really important. I would also say, uh, again, that you know one of the other major challenges is the increasing cost of education. Um, I see this as a fundamental issue of access and equity. One of my passions uh, in the foreign affairs arena broadly and obviously in international affairs education are issues of diversity and ensuring that any young person who has their eye on the horizon uh, from whatever their background, socioeconomic, uh, uh, racial, national origin, whatever, uh, has both the opportunity uh, and the, um, the skill set to be able to engage in that. And so the major task for us is to figure out, continue to figure out, how we make those options accessible to all the most um, desirous uh, young people who seek a future in foreign affairs for themselves.
0: So, you know, the next question was around what is uh, an international affairs education. And I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the initiatives you're pursuing as a way of explaining that. And that is the, what is the global capstone and how does that factor in to the way you educate your students?
2: So global capstone is a program for our second year master's students and essentially Uh, It is uh, an opportunity uh, in place of a master's thesis, a written thesis, for our students to work in teams of three or four on a real-world problem for a real-world client um, uh, on the basis of the education they've had so far. So it might be, for example, um, providing uh, consultative services to an NGO to help them think through how do they come up with a, a predictable funding model for um, you know helping farmer collectives in in Zambia or it might be uh, working on a particular problem a policy problem for the international Committee of the Red Cross or it might be um, you know, helping a company figure out what is the best uh, way to help them develop a, a strategy to access a particular consumer market in Brazil and the reason we do that is uh, the following. One, uh, the reason it's a team project as opposed to an individual project is that the vast majority of people will have to work together in teams. Interestingly, we actually used to make it an elective and for for young people, for students to either decide to write a thesis or work in a capstone. What we found is that most people chose to write a thesis because they didn't want to work in a team. <laughs> and uh, what we realized is that uh, on the assumption that their, uh, their coursework had prepared them really quite well for the individual sort of writing and uh, intellectual analysis. If they were going to be competitive in the workplace, they really did need to learn how to work at a high level with other teams. This spring break, we sent capstone teams um, to uh, 70 capstone teams to, I think, almost 20 countries around the world oh, wow. uh, working on real-world projects, uh, and we do that every year. So, um, the, the, the the focus, again, is, is bringing the theory and the practice together. Uh, in a, quote, capstone experience.
0: The other, um, under your leadership, the Elliott School recognized the need to address leadership, ethics, and, as you said earlier, practical training. And that culminated, as I understand it, in the creation of the LEAP initiative. Could you tell us more about that?
2: So the LEAP initiative, which stands for Leadership Ethics and Practice Initiative, is meant to be the clearinghouse for the development of curriculum and uh, extracurricular programs that teach Each of those three things. So we've done a number of things in this regard. For example, um, we have uh, hired a uh, this past year a, a new professor of ethics and international affairs who will help develop an entire uh, curriculum for our students, which I suspect will become mandatory for all of our undergraduate students. Perhaps with, with a with a gateway required course on ethics and international affairs and a series of elective courses, for example, ethics and armed conflict, ethics and humanitarian assistance, ethics and capital markets, uh, to help our students again think through uh, how they develop their own more compasses and also think through ethical problems, uh, or think through international affairs problems from an ethical perspective. We also have a a speaker series called Why Ethics Matter, uh, in which we bring to campus people who have wrestled at very high stakes with very challenging international affairs problems from an ethical perspective and live to tell the story, so that our students can understand that it is indeed possible. Uh, to do the right thing and uh, and and go on to, to talk about it. On the leadership issue, uh, as I mentioned, we're also not only developing a leadership practicum for our students, but also trying to think through ways in which we can use both existing um, uh, 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 extracurricular activities, such as Model United Nations and crisis simulations uh, and others to help our students know how do you actually not only sort of work with teams, but actually persuade people and lead people through challenging circumstances uh, to achieve an outcome. Because uh, assuming that they want to engage in these really difficult problems and want to have an upper trajectory in their careers, they are going to have to know how to do that. And we should start now. And then finally, with regard to practice, uh, we're developing a series of skills courses from general courses that every for skills that everybody needs to know. So how to do professional writing as opposed to academic writing. How do you do media uh, interviews? Uh, how do you do um, a small group leadership? To more specific courses, depending on uh, where you think you might want to work. So if you think you want to go into international humanitarian work, how do you do a refugee status determination in the field? If you think you want to uh, do international development work, how do you actually uh, write a grant proposal? So that the Elliott School difference will be our students will say, you know, if you're asked, you, know, do, you do you know how to write a grant proposal? The answer is not going to be no but I got an A in freshman English, the Angels she because I had to write one for my global capstone, and here's how I did it. I know I can do it for you.
0: You know, my, my, my last question in this area was around your, the institutes and centers that the Elliott School supports. But even more importantly, how, has, how have innovation and technological advances sort of changed the way international affairs is practiced and taught?
2: We live in the great... Digital age, and historically, um, whether it's been um, the, the the advent of um, of universities that are open to the to, to everybody as opposed to so a much smaller elite, um, or even just the early advent of uh, of computer technology away from uh, mere print, um, there's always a question of of. What is worth preserving and how do you actually uh, take advantage of new technologies? In the context of international affairs broadly, I, I would argue that the the, the two greatest innovations uh, over the last, say, 50, 60 years, uh, certainly the last 50, 60 years, is, are the ability of people to travel very quickly. Uh, to places all around the world, which literally shrunk the world for all, which has implications for the flow of capital markets to um, the ability of people to, um, uh, to work in m- multiple countries on multiple continents on the same issue set for whether it be um, uh, issues of climate and the environment or, or, or disaster assistance or the like. And then obviously, the big change over the last 10 years has been the rise of social media. Uh, in the explosion of information and um, both for the good in terms of um, helping to spread um, values really that, that, that many of us hold dear and issues of you know, press freedom and human rights, et cetera, and also quite frankly for the bad and the so-called spread of you know, fake news and propaganda and the, the, um, uh, the effects that can have in destabilizing countries. So, in the academy, um, we not only have to wrestle with these developments as a means of, of adjusting our analysis in international affairs. Who matters in terms of decision-making? Where are the poles of power to make things happen? Um, how universal are these values? Um, do they really matter? To the actual the use of technology for the delivery of our content and really thinking, uh, so what actually constitutes an effective education in the first place. So whether that be the advent of uh, online um, degrees that can be taught entirely online or partially online to, frankly, even questioning whether or not um, a two-year master's degree or a four-year undergraduate degree um, is the right way to think about um, uh, uh, both the education and credentialing um, of, of young people. The other thing, too, quite frankly, is that so those of us who are foreign affairs professionals, Um, would argue that there are obviously a set, a sort of baskets of knowledge that one has to have uh, in order to operate in the space. Obviously, foreign language, um, uh, regional um, uh, politics and history backgrounds. um, I would argue economics, as one of my many peers would as well, and perhaps some others. Uh, And yet, um, unlike the law, unlike medicine, unlike engineering, um, the nature of our foreign affairs education is not as a, as much of a hard barrier for entry into the field. For example, you would never go to, doc, to a medical school with somebody who hadn't gone to, never go to get to be treated by a doctor for somebody who hadn't gone to medical school, although that used to be the case. It um, didn't used to be the case you had to go to law school in order to practice the law. Um, but. It is still very much the case that um, careers in international affairs are not inherently closed off to people that don't have foreign affairs degrees. And thus, we have to constantly ask ourselves, what is the relevance of what we're doing in the academy for the future of our students? And we have to get it right, um, because uh, if their value proposition isn't a correct one, um, then people will vote with their feet.
0: What about a career in foreign service? We will ask Ambassador Reuben Brigetti, Dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ambassador Ruben Brigitte, Dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. So, Ambassador, from your perspective, how is Africa transforming rapidly, and how is it changing?
2: Africa is arguably the most dynamic region of the world. There are 54 sovereign countries 55, depending on what you think about the Western Sahara, but at least 54. Um, it is a continent of just over a billion people. It is the youngest continent uh, in the world. Um, it is argued demographically that by, the, by mid-century, a quarter of humanity will be African. And uh, it has the fastest um, uh, growth rate by population in the world. Um, and yet... And there are are some very interesting um, economic um, stories happening in Africa. Um, The top two fastest growing economies in the world, um, Ethiopia, Ghana and Ethiopia in 2018 are both African. Arguably, in fact, seven of the top 10 fastest growing economies in the world are, 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 are in Africa. Uh, there are some tremendously interesting um, stories uh, happening on the continent uh, with regard to governance from the historic changes that are happening in Ethiopia to um, real politics that are happening in South Africa, you know, Ghana, et cetera. J- just uh, obviously, um, uh, very, very recently, the uh, president of Algeria uh, uh, was forced to step down because of mass protests from a young population that is uh, uh, demanding change in their countries. And yet, there are obviously massive problems. Um, there remain uh, places of substantial conflict, uh, particularly uh, in South Sudan, um, and uh, large numbers of uh, migrants and refugees that uh, are fleeing the continent uh, because there are young people that feel so stifled about their future, where they are, that they are prepared to trek thousands of miles, hundreds of miles, uh, and get on very rickety boats across the Mediterranean or across the Red Sea uh, that are very deadly voyages, and that they know are deadly voyages, but they're willing to take the risk, um, because they don't see futures for themselves at home. So, when you talk to senior African uh, government leaders, they are all keenly aware of this dynamic. And as a result, this youth bubble uh, that, is, that, it, that is maturing now uh, presents both an incredible opportunity as well as an incredible challenge, not only for Africa, but for, but for everybody else uh, in the world, quite frankly. So uh, I am one uh, who's of the view that the development of the continent is clearly in the interest of the United States. Um, and therefore it is in our interest to support American businesses uh, to help the continent develop and to make money in the process, um, as well as to help um, uh, young Africans find a future uh, on their continent at home. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, speaking before we get into the U.S. role there, I'd like to talk about the Chinese and the China's role um, or involvement in the continent. It's even stronger than ever. You know, it's a multi-layered question, but Should the African – should African nations tread carefully in building an alliance with a more stronger power like China? What are some of the mutual benefits derived from such a relationship? And what should African nations be concerned about in forging this relationship?
2: African countries are sovereign countries like any other country in the world. And individually and in smaller blocks and even quite frankly the African Union as a whole – Um, will have to decide um, what the value of their partnerships are with any other non-African country, to include China. Now, the Chinese have taken uh, a very smart approach, which is to say that they are there. And they are there in in significant amounts. There are a million Chinese across Africa um, uh, in virtually every country on the continent. Um, and uh, the, both Chinese um, uh, uh, private firms and state-backed firms, et cetera, um, are doing everything from building ports and railways to um, light manufacturing for textiles to uh, excavating um, uh, raw materials, minerals, timber, etc., for export back to China. And then uh, in a classic or neo, uh, neo-mercantilist way, um, reselling those goods to Africa and elsewhere in the world. I remember having a conversation with a group of African ambassadors uh, when I was working in the State Department and suggesting that, of course, American companies would like to be doing more in Africa, but, of course, African, uh, in order to make that happen, African governments would have to do more to improve their business environment and their approach to governments and whatnot. And one particularly astute African ambassador said to me, Dr. Brigitti, thank you very much, but you need to understand something. The Chinese are here, the Brazilians are here. The Turks are here. The Israelis are here. And American firms need to learn how to do business in Africa as it is, not as you wish it would be. Interesting. And so, uh, given both the demographic trends, given the large number of continents, uh, countries on the continent, each of which has a sovereign vote in every foreign organization, organization to which they belong, uh, the United States, quite frankly, needs to be doing much more. Uh, to strengthen its position on the continent as a matter of not only for its own interests but also partnering for the future of Africans themselves.
0: Well, actually, can we stay on that? Because from your perspective, how can, you know, what does, how can it do more, the U.S.? Uh, what does the future of the U.S.-African partnership look like? And um, how can we enhance that strategic relationship? So,
2: where we have been very good um, is in supporting the defense uh, uh, security relationship uh, of a number of countries uh, on the continent. Uh, We've also, quite frankly, been uh, historically quite good at... Uh, various humanitarian approaches, whether it be helping to blunt the spread of the uh, HIV pandemic to uh, addressing uh, uh, disasters when they arise, um, like the recent floods in Mozambique, etc. Um, where we have been much less um, effective is in the promotion and support of American businesses engaging on the continent. Um, China... I think about four years ago, uh, surpassed uh, the United States as the largest trading partner on the continent. Um, and if you take uh, petroleum out of that, um, then the numbers are even uh, more stark. So on the one hand, obviously our model as a free market uh, economy is for American businesses to, um, to, to, uh, to make their own choices with regard to their investment and their engagement. However, I think there's an awful lot that the United States can do not only to uh, highlight the opportunities there are in Africa, but also, quite frankly, to use the diplomatic leverage to help create frameworks for American businesses to be successful on American terms as opposed to on Chinese terms uh, for the development of the infrastructure of the continent.
0: Interesting. So, you know, I have, I have a sort of a, a philosophical question for you, if you will, is, you know, I, I think you've written it somewhere in one of the, your articles Why has Africa long been a blind spot for Westerners?
2: Africa has not been a blind spot for all Westerners. It's been a blind spot for Americans. Okay, Um, and you know one might argue, for example, that the former colonial powers, uh, especially the French, uh, the British, uh, to a lesser extent the Belgians and Portuguese. have done a much better job at engaging, certainly their companies have. Um, I think that's particularly true of France and especially in Francophone Africa. Um, this is obviously a large generalization and people can, uh, can, can dispute it with the specific uh, uh, details. But, you know, what's interesting to me looking uh, at America is that um, American firms have been um, uh, eager uh, to look beyond the horizon, and have not been afraid um, to go to places, um, particularly in challenging areas like petroleum or other extractives, uh, but. In places like uh, in, in areas of um, of consumer goods or of you know services or skills, uh, I think there quite frankly is still a um, a, a backwards view of the continent um, that is dated uh, by decades, and has yet to fully understand that large swaths of the continent have moved on within within, a, within um, you know within 10 years, Africa will have as many middle class consumers as India has right now. And that is an enormous opportunity. And the question is, who's going to sell them stuff? Is it going to be us or is it going to be China? Um, or is it going to be, you know, the European Union? Or is it going to be Britain? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue that for a, a a culture such as ours that, you know, tamed the American West, that is, helped develop our own continent, um, that we can and should afford to figure out how we can make these sorts of opportunities um, uh, uh, available for American small and medium enterprises as well as the large firms as well.
0: Now I want to talk about your your time as a practitioner, and and in particular, you were the U.S. ambassador to the uh, African Union, the AU. Would you tell us more about the history and mission of the AU? When was it created, and how has it evolved to date?
2: Sure. The African Union is the successor organization to the old Organization for African Unity, which was founded in 1963 by uh, those countries that were free of colonialism uh, at the time. And it was founded for the principal purpose of uh, of ending colonialism on the continent uh, and uh, to developing a common vision for, for Africa. So, with the, uh, the fall of apartheid in 1994, that vision was largely complete. Although there is some debate, again, about Western Sahara and Morocco. And uh, following that, and obviously following the end of the Cold War and the growth of the European Union, uh, African heads of states began to ask themselves, "What do we want more out of our continental organization? Is it now that we have essentially won the fight against colonialism?" Uh, can we do more for the development of the continent and do it jointly together? So, uh, after a series of, uh, of conferences, ultimately in, uh, in 2003, the old uh, Organization for African Unity was officially decommissioned and the, organ- and the African Union was created. Uh, modeled loosely uh, after the European Union. Uh, it also has a uh, an assembly of heads of state and government, which comprised of uh, every head of state of of, of every member of state. It has a peace and security council, which looks an awful lot like the UN Security Council. It also has fifteen members. However, it does not have any permanent members, uh, and states rotate um, on a um, on a two year, two or three year um, uh, term of office. Uh, and uh, it has a series of commissioners, which are the equivalent of, of ministers or our secretaries, mm-hmm. um, covering a series of functional areas from trade and industry and peace and security to economic affairs uh, and, uh, and, uh, and social affairs. And the, the purpose is to uh, develop uh, a, a peaceful, pros- prosperous, and integrated Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most significant development, which uh, was in 2017, which was the, the creation of the African Common Free Trade Area, um, which when it's finally com- uh, completed, when the last country ratifies, will create the largest free trade area in the world. Um, and again, this is an opportunity that uh, American firms um, supported by the American government absolutely needs to be positioned to take advantage of.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, switching a little bit uh, beyond the AU, but something that probably that's in their um, Uh, area of interest is some some observers have been alarmed or have expressed alarmed uh, around the decline of democracy in East Africa. What is your assessment?
2: It's a mixed bag, to be frank. Um, On the one hand, um, Ethiopia, uh, which is the second most populous country in Africa, the seat of the African Union, the diplomatic capital of Africa, uh, has undergone tremendous, arguably historic on a millennial scale, um, political developments within the last year, uh, with the former prime minister, Haile Mariam voluntarily, uh, relinquishing power, which is the first time in 2000 years of Ethiopian history that has ever happened. Uh, and the new prime minister, um, uh, Dr. Abiy Ahmed, uh, assuming office at a time of really quite, um, um, uh, Substantial tension in the country over a series of ethnic issues, uh, and he has pushed through a series of political and economic reforms to open the country up to make it more, um, uh, make its economy more market friendly, and we will see over the course of the next year um, uh, to open political space to make it a much more. Um, uh, vibrant uh, uh, country politically, where people um, can uh, can can vote their own way, as opposed to it being dominated by a particular um, particular uh, party. In Kenya, um, Kenya is challenging. Um, it has uh, uh, had a series of quite fraught and uh, and violent um, uh, presidential elections. Uh, the, the, the latest election. Uh, saw uh, President Uhuru uh, uh reelected and then uh, after some time, uh, a reconciliation with his main political ri- rival, uh, Ryla Odinga. Uh, and I think it remains to be seen, quite frankly, um, if the reforms, the new Kenyan constitution um, will translate into a, um, a more open political process that at a bare minimum, is less violent, um, and that translates into less uh, violence around elections, and that hopefully um, uh, will move away from state capture. In Eritrea, which is the um, uh, uh, kind of had been the perennial um, uh, hostile um, uh, opponent of Ethiopia for 20 years, uh, that is still uh, one of the most closed states in the world, second perhaps only to North Korea. Um, the uh, the advent of uh, Prime Minister Abiy in Ethiopia has led to some unprecedented openings uh, between Eritrea and Ethiopia, with President Isaias uh, of Eritrea exchanging visits between Asmara and, and Addis Ababa. That's that's like. Rigging going to Moscow. Mm-hmm. I mean it's, it's really it's really that significant. Um, the, uh, depending on what you define as the limits of the Horn of Africa, uh, South Sudan remains a basket case, obviously. Um, forget democracy just trying to stop a war. Um, and uh, Djibouti as well, a uh, tiny little country but extraordinarily important strategically uh, given the location of its port. Um, is also very far from democracy, and quite frankly, has never been so much of a pretense of one. Um, at least that would, that would be my argument. Tanzania is a, is a more is a more problematic story. That that's a country that, um, from its founding, and uh, uh, given the legacy of its founding president Julius Nyerere, uh, had been um, something of a beacon of a more um, kind of liberal, um, liberal with a small L, um, a politically open uh, uh, place that has. Seen that political space shrink uh, uh, after um, the stepping down of uh, President Kikwete. Uh and so the, the the challenge with democracy, I would argue, the sort of the macro challenge with democracy in Africa as a whole, is not that people don't want democracy. Um, and in fact, anyone who would tell you that Africans, that democracy is a Western import and the Africans don't want democracy, they want something else, would be challenged with two questions. One, how do you know? You have to ask them. And if you ask them, that's democracy. And the second is, what's is, what's the other thing? What is the what is the inherently sort of African form of government that is that is properly satisfying? And I think particularly um, amongst these young people, there clearly is a desire for, uh, for a form of government and political participation that takes advantage of their aspirations. The challenge is that there's not... There's not an endogenous, inherent flywheel in the context of Africa that will that is a, serves as a forcing function for more democratic things, unlike, for example, how the European Union served as a magnetic pull for eastern countries uh, that were emerging from the Soviet Union that wanted to democratize as a means of having access to the EU, as a means of having access to NATO, because they understood that was the price of admission. There is nothing similar to that in the context of Africa, which suggests that on the one hand, African states and African heads of state in particular have to do a a better job at holding each other accountable in that space, as is African civil society. And I would also argue that it it creates a particularly important role for, um, for friends of Africa like the United States. Uh, to be supportive of indigenous uh, democracy movements.
0: So, before we go, I just have two final questions. One dealing with the future. One around advice. Turning to the future, what are your highest priorities over the next couple of years?
2: I believe that we have we are undergoing a serious crisis of governance here in the United States. We are more polarized than we've ever been, certainly in my lifetime. Um, by any objective measure, our uh, our democratic institutions at the federal level are cutting, uh, undergoing increasing strain. That is not a partisan statement. I think that is uh, an objective view. Uh, and we have got to figure out how to make these things work. So as much as I consider myself a foreign policy professional, I really believe that the fight for America's future is at home. Again, regardless of party.
0: Second question was, what advice would you give a person who's considering a career in public service in general or foreign service in particular.
2: Follow your passion. Passion beats discipline every day of the week. And if this is something that uh, you're passionate about, um, first come to the Elliott School. Be happy to help you sort of figure out how to do that. But more, but more significantly, um, I would strongly encourage you to stick with it and then find a way to um, to find your find your space in the field.
0: Great, Ambassador Brady, Thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Did you want to make a plug?
2: Yes. The Elliott School uh, commencement ceremonies are May 17th, Friday, May 17th. Our commencement speaker this year will be Cindy McCain, uh, the widow of late Senator John McCain. We expect to be televised. Uh, Stand by for details. We hope you'll tune
0: in. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Ambassador Ruben Brigitte, dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. Be sure to join me next week for another informative insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
1: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
2: Performance management initiatives over the past two decades helped shift the conversation within and across U.S. government agencies from a focus on measuring program activities and outputs to a focus on achieving mission outcomes. Join host Michael Keegan next week for a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the evolution of performance management in government.